Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask my guest to tell me the five things from their life that they'd like to put into a time capsule. That's it, basically, apart from the fact that they pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they'd like to bury and forget. My guest in this episode is the actor and improviser Steve Steen, who for many years worked with another of my guests, Jim Sweeney, whose episode you may have heard recently. Steve and Jim worked together so much that many people thought they were a double act. It was Jim that persuaded Steve to join Oval House Theatre Club in 1972, where they first started doing improv together. By the 1980s, they were performing on TV in the ITV children's show CBTV, and then they were in one of Channel 4's first comedies, Little Armadillos. They were regular performers on Whose Line Is It Anyway, hosted by Clive Anderson, and they played Byron and Coleridge in Blackadder III. Steve also worked on Ben Elton's comedy Happy Families and was the voice of El Nombre. He was Liam in Radio 4's Any Bloke and starred as George Melly in Radio 4's adaptation of George Melly's memoirs, Owning Up. In the theatre, Steve has done three one-man tours with adaptations of the works of Bill Bryson, which he talks about in this episode, and a one-man show about the American comedian John Belushi, which he doesn't. He played Charles Dickens at the National Theatre in Theatre of Blood and regularly performs improvisation with the Comedy Star Players in London, Paul Merton's improv chums all over the country and the world, in fact, and Stephen Frost's Improvisers All-Stars. And yet, Steve is a quiet and rather shy man, but very lovely, as you'll now discover as he tells you, amongst other things, the five things from his life he'd like in a time capsule. 
Oh, I've been told by my producer, who regular listeners will also know is my son, that the recording we made for the very first time has little jumps in it. It's never happened before. He wanted me to point out that this was the recording and nothing to do with his ability as an editor. But I won't bother telling you, because I think most people wouldn't notice it unless you tell them it happens occasionally. So forget that I said that. Thank you. Obviously, it's not the greatest recording we've had in terms of sound, but the quality of the guest makes up for that, I hope. In fact, I know. Here is the delightful Steve Steen. I spoke to Jim just the other day. I mean, I was singing your praises. He was singing your praises, oh, which I know he never does in your presence. No. I know. Held me back all my career, that man. Yeah, yeah. A big mistake. Why did you meet a man whose surname starts with the same letter? Stupid. Well... There's a story there. Um, people always got names confused. I mean, you know, Jim's family, I've known for donkey's years. Um, in fact, you know, we met when we were very, very young. So I kind of grew up with them. And I think that was the thing, you know, when you see two people together for a very long time, you forgive yourself for calling one Jim and one Steve when it should be the other way around. Mm. It got so bad at once that we were even getting reviews with Jim Steen, Steve Sweeney <laughs> when we were on TV. Um, Chris Tarrant got the names completely confused, yeah. then had to do an apology the following week and say, no, I've got to get this right. It's Jim Steen and Steve Steen. <laughs> Even my mother called me Jim one day. There is an actor, but they called Steve Sweeney. Really? <laughs> and um, I, I have met him. So, yeah, it is a bit peculiar. I also met Michael Sheen at the National Theatre. And um, after a few too many beers, went up to him and said, hey, we should do a double act, you know, <laughs> Steen and Sheen. <laughs> or you should start producing a polish. You could call it after yourself. Yeah. Uh, my agent, Richard Stone. Um, if I phone them up, receptionist, say, I, um, she's busy on the call. I said, I'll put you through in a minute. So then, you know, to the while, put me through. And uh, I could hear a voice saying, who is it? And she said, it's Peter Dean. <laughs> it's not even close, is it? Peter Dean. Anyway, we should have had the courage of our convictions yeah. when we had the option of yeah. choosing a name. Yeah. You know, when you join Equity, originally as a young actor, and they say, so what's your name? And you could be anybody. At the time, I thought, perhaps I should take the surname Olivier. Perhaps it will give me, an, you know, an in into places. People would say, are you, um, are you related? And that's, that's one thing I've noticed in the business. If anyone's got a famous uncle or aunt or distant cousin, oh, my goodness me. Don't they like to talk about it? Yeah. Although, apart from, occasionally you get people who have absolutely avoided it. Hmm. Have you ever worked with Chris Larkin? Hmm. Who is called Chris Larkin because he was reading a book of poetry by Philip Larkin hmm. when they said to him, what name do you want to be called as an equity name? Hmm. His name is Chris, but he said, Chris... Larkin. Yeah. I think also they said to him, you can't be called Chris Smith, because that is his name. And his mother is Maggie Smith. Yeah, sadly, no, no one in my family. I did toy with two other surnames. One was Eldon, Steve Eldon, I could have been. But then Eldon means elf mound. So I mean, basically, it's, it's like self-droppings, basically. I mean, it's, you, know, <laughs> you don't want any kind of uh, contact with shit in your surname. That, that wouldn't do. People would eventually use it. Yeah. So Steen, that would come from, is that from Stein, as it were? Steen, now Steen is a bastardization of Celtic. But all they've done is taken out either the V or the PH, however you want to spell it. So I'm, mm. you know, basically I'm Stephen Steven. <laughs> of course, yeah. 
I wonder if that would work, though, Steve and Stephen. Steve, Stephen, yeah. No, I'm glad that you are the great Steve Steen. <laughs> That's what I'm going to call you way through this, Steve. I'm going to call you the great Steve Steen. Because I have been on stage with you. Yes. And uh, it's way ahead of anything I could ever do. It's a laugh. I mean, I, I try and talk the whole thing down because, you know, it, it used to be, I mean, as, as you'll probably know, it used to be a dirty word in, in acting. It, if, if you mentioned improvisation, people go, no, 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 don't do that. I don't do that. And people think that that makes it impossible for you to learn a script and say the words because you'll you'll always be messing around with them. I've done that in the past. Yeah, I mean, and um, the last one, of the last thing I did uh, for EastEnders, I play a character called Magic Marv who came in. I broke the internet. Just the fact that you had comedy in the show finally. The Queen was trending on Twitter, and she had turned up at a fashion show in London, and everyone said. What? I mean, the, the Queen? No, she, no, she never does that. And I, I was on EastEnders the same night, and my son rang me up and said, Dad, have you seen the internet? Um, <laughs> no. I said, no. Um, he said, it's, you're everywhere. It's all over the place. And um, what had happened was the performance had gone out. It had kind of angered and pleased the EastEnders fan. It split them right down the middle. Half of them just said, who is this? What the bloody hell is he doing out here? And the other half said, about time we had a bit of comedy. You know, quite liked it. Keep it going. It was all that kind of stuff. And um, he said, check out Twitter. I played this character, Magic Marv. He was a, an alcoholic children's entertainer. And I went into audition. I did the usual thing. I said, I know this character. I grew up with this character. I met this character. I worked this character. Anything to get the part. And when it came down a bit, he said, listen, we need 30 seconds of something just to, to fill this. And, and I said, yeah, okay. So I just kept throwing in, you know, kind of little bits. And, and um, he kept something that was well, which was good. But it, I, I think that's, there was a looseness to the character. And I think that's what split the EastEnders Arati. Yeah. But I tell you what was really good. I mean, just being on set. With, with that crowd and then walking to them. And of course, I mean, they, they work so hard. You know, they've got yeah. three or four scripts on the go at any time. And there's all going off to do their various things. And someone would kind of get a call need to disappear to go off and do um, the next thing for a show he's doing in three weeks' mm. time or whatever. You know, I was, I was just impressed by them. I just thought, no, oh, it's amazing. It is amazing, isn't it? Mm. I mean, I've done most of those things, actually. I've done EastEnders, I've done Coronation Street, yeah. and the same thing is that the moment that they're finished, somebody will grab them and start changing their costume on the way to the next place. They'll hand them another script and say, you're doing this one next. And it will be from a completely different show, a completely different situation. You've got to remember all the things yeah. that have happened before and after. Really difficult. What, what Danny Dyer walked in right at the end of recording, and I thought, oh, well, I'm glad. It disappeared because I thought it'd be nice to, to, to meet the governor. Um, it turns out it was related to royalty. I said, I, I didn't know whether to shake your hand or just bow very low. And he said, that's okay. It's nice. It was nice meeting some <laughs> people that, that, you know, you see as, as characters. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, what we're going to do, Steve, is we're going to talk about five things from your life you want to put in a time capsule. Yeah. So I'll be very interested to find out what they are. So what's your first thing? Well, my first thing, actually, we've already spoken about him, is Jim. Ah. Because if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here doing this. It was because of him that I actually became involved in acting in the first place and, and actually thought of acting as a possible career. 
and a possible future. Mm. When I was at school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I mean, me and Jim, and Jim, when I, when I was 12, he came into the classroom in the second year. He was the only boy in short trousers. And he came walking down the middle of the class, <laughs> looking like little Lord Fauntleroy or the, or the, or Gainsborough's blue boy. He had these kind of blonde curls piled up on top. <laughs> you know, and I just, I, I just looked around the class and I could see, I could see the bleeds, you know, just kind of getting their knuckles ready to grab him at playtime. And I mean, we quickly realized that we had similar sense of humor um, and became friends. And, and he never got good whatsoever because everyone just loved him. Yeah. You know, the big thing about Jim is that he is totally, absolutely, and undeniably lovable. He is no one ever hate Jim. You know, not when he was in a mood, and he rarely, rarely ever got in a mood. No. And anyway, we kind of grew up together. We lived practically each other's places all the time with each other's families. So we really did kind of grow up together. And I would go around to his place and meet his mum and dad and the rest of the family, and they'd all be very welcoming. And at Christmas time, his mum would make me a tray of mince pie because I happened to mention once that I actually liked mince pies, not individual mince pies. She made she made me a whole tray, <laughs> which I and then had to eat, and it was delicious as well. Um, <laughs> and anyway, so when Jim came and told me about this place that he'd gone to called Oval House. Mm. He said, you've got to come down. It's a great place, very weird, lots of he's, it's, it's a wonderful place. And, and I said, what, what goes on there? Well, they do, they do theatre. And I went, really? What? Um, like, uh, like the West End? That, he said, no, 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 nothing like that. There's no kind of, there's no poncy actors, he said. They're really, really good, fun people. You know, I think you'd really like it. And I, and I said, no. And I did that for probably two or three months. Just no, no, no. <laughs> and it, eventually he, he just, you know, he virtually twisted my arm, if you can do that. And even then, I spent a year in total silence, terrified by everyone. And there were, there were lots of people down there I would yet, you know, go, go on to discover mm. who were actors in their own right anyway. I mean, uh, Piss Brosnan started there. Um, Tim Roth started there. Um, John Ratzenberger came there for his Cliff Clavin in years and played the pig in, in Toy Story, devices of countless Disney characters. He was one of the guys who taught us in pro. And he kind of gave us the feeling that it was okay to laugh wow. at the other person's gags. You know, if you come up with a line, it's okay to laugh because, hey, yeah, yeah. you've heard it for the first time. You know, so it's fine. Anyway, so he so eventually got me involved. And after he got, I started doing the workshops and, you know, we ended up working together, going out and working together. The guy who ran the base, Peter Oliver, sadly not with us anymore, he said to us, what are you going to do now? You know, once, once we've kind of done our first show and everything, he said, what are you going to do now? And we said, well, I don't know, you know, maybe you could give us some tips. And he said, well, you've got two choices, really. You either go to drama school and you learn some technique, um, or you go up on the road and pick up your experience that way. So we went away and we went, oh, okay, uh, what should we do? Um, okay, so we, um, yeah, we'll get on the road. Yeah, okay. Let's go to him. All right. So, uh, Peter, we're going to go out on the road and, and learn from an experience. And he went, nah, I wouldn't have done that. I would have gone to drama school. So we <laughs> yeah. went, oh, really? Okay. Okay. So we went away and we came back and said, Peter, we decided we're going to go to drama school. And he said, what? Learn technique you can never use. <laughs> Come on. Get out on the road. And we went, oh, okay. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> Thanks for your advice. <laughs> but it's quite a decision, isn't it? That thing of, it's strange that at that age, 
you somebody says you could just go out on the road and learn your experience by performing to people and you, you don't say but how you say okay well that's what we'll do then. yeah yeah it's such a strange thing and uh, and i keep telling people now i say well look you know in your two years three years however many don't expect to make a lot of money because you won't you know i mean we, we had to really scrimp and save you know we used to build our own props gather our own costume, all this kind of stuff, and until we realised that you don't need costume, you don't need to think, as long as you've got to come up with, it's, it's a good storyline. Once you've got that, improvisation skills kick in, and you, you'll eventually start to pull a show together, which, which mm. we did for our first show. But it's difficult. We, we didn't make a bean for three years, I think. Yeah, I remember no. doing the same thing, but doing review rather than improv. Yeah. We were lucky that we had a job at the BBC, and as much as we yeah, were recording yeah. a radio series there, but we did six episodes <laughs> and we got £32 an episode. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's not going to keep you, is it? So instead, what we did was we went to the BBC and we used their telephones to phone every theatre in the country and say, would you like us to come and do a review? And one in 20 went, yeah, OK, can you come on this date? We, OK. So we shot all over the country in ridiculous journeys. You know, We're playing Portsmouth, we're playing Carlisle the following day. But we did it, and it was great fun. Yeah, I mean, we took our little set and costume all over the space as well. But so green, I mean, so naive about everything, even to the point where we would turn up at the theatre space and ask them if they had something to put behind our phony Jeep and clouds so that we could suspend these things from the ceiling. But, and we were horrified when some space said, actually, I don't think we've got, we've got the stage ways, but they're, <laughs> they're holding up your side flats. And we, we were going, side flats? <laughs> what are they? The whole thing was learning process. Yeah. Um, and the same in front of an audience. So when you first started, was it completely improvised or did you sort of slightly work it beforehand? We, we worked an awful lot. I mean, the very first show we did was a kind of sketch show, which which took the mig out of all the other shows that were on. And I, I thought that was a really good and clever format because people actually mm-hmm. came to the theatre, obviously, to see their favourite shows. Then they would come along and see the show, the, the Mickey, out of the shows they'd seen. So... There was already an audience for us. Yeah. But I was so nervous. I threw up before the show. Oh, my God. And got through the show. And then when we finished the show, I vomited again. And I kept thinking, well, I hope it's not going to be like this all the way through. I can't do this for very long. This is going to be agony. (laughs) But it is. You're famous for your vomiting. (laughs) When did you fall in with the Comedy Store players? Well, it was much, much later. Neil Malarkey had phoned me up for ages and ages, asking me to go and do some stuff down there. And I just kept saying no, because Jim and I had, had already done quite a few years on the cabaret circuit. So, you know, we'd, we'd kind of done the sort of sketch format an awful lot. And these were all based on exercises that we used to do in workshops. So, you know, I mean, none of these games were new. There's little that's new in improvisation. It's it's very rare to actually find someone when they say, oh, I've, got, I've got this new idea, I've got this new format. And you watch and you, and you, you look at it and you say, hmm, no, it was actually, that was actually done back in the 70s. <laughs> you really need to hear history. Yeah, yeah. So we were doing these kind of sketch, these, the sketch show stuff and asking the audience for various suggestions for things. So I kind of had enough. And when Neil phoned me up and said, do you want to come do it? I just I hummed and hard an awful lot. And eventually I just said, no, I, I don't really I don't really like that format. Um, 
Jim got a call from Nick and said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. I mean, he was just, Jim was smarter, one of the two of us. He, he was the, he was the one who said, yes, I'll do it. So yeah, he went off to join the comedy store players and uh, I went off to do shows. Yeah, people always think of you as almost as a double act and you're not really. You just happened to have done those things together early on and done a few telly things together. Yeah, we were um, thought of as kind of joined at the hip. Mm. People found it incredible when they meet one of us and they always ask where the other one was. And, it, it was, it, and you know, it's fun after a while, but uh, you know, then it starts to drag and, and then eventually you think, well, I've got to do something, you know, to, to get people to see that I, I do something else. And so I went off and, and did more kind of uh, scripted. So I did loads of men's shows, all, all, um, all scripted. But I still advised the nose because it was, mm. there's an audience there. It's, it's impossible. It takes over after a while and you just, just throw in the ad libs. You can't help it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I should be eternally grateful to Jim for getting me to come down and join in. Yes. And isn't he a lesson in life, uh, even now? Yeah. When you think, you know, he's had this illness for a long time. Long, long and time. It's, it's completely debilitating now. Yeah. And yet one of the most life-filled people yeah. you can think of. Um, and, uh, you know, whenever I go to see him, but it's, it's like the years just, just roll away. And um, it's, it's like being mm. kids again. We just, you know, I mean, it's two very old men <laughs> who should know better sit in a room um, sharing a, a nice bottle or something and just laughing, but laughing like kids, you know, crying with laughter. <laughs> and stories of the two of us together. I mean, I mean, we shared everything growing up. I mean, literally everything, which could have got us into trouble once or twice, but never did. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, we had such a great time. And even even with the TV and bits of filming mm. together, we, it, it, it was all a laugh. It was all a game. And going up to Edinburgh each year just became a regular thing. And people, you know, in the early days when people would ask at the Oval House, you know, when's that next show? We found that people were doing that when we got to Edinburgh, waiting for the next show of Sweeney and Steam, which is really nice, really nice. Lovely. Well, what a fortuitous thing. I should certainly put Jim into the yeah. time capsule. That's a very important first item to put there. He is just the most terrific guy. Lovely. Yeah. All right. He's safe in there. Hooray. Anytime you want to have a look. Good, yeah. I, I shall, I'll always get him out and say, put your short trousers on. <laughs> One day you're looking like Lord Fauntleroy again. <laughs> okay, brilliant, Steve. Let's move on to the second thing you want to put in. Yeah, well, the second thing I want to put in is laughter in general. The very first thing I ever did with a group of young actors was a modern version of Vorsek. It was called Will Nilly. And I can't actually remember a single line from it, but I don't remember it being full of laughs, really. I mean, <laughs> and I just recall, like, the first time we got up on stage as a group, there was me and him and another guy, Dave Stone, who, again, is sadly no longer with, but I, I remember the first time the audience laughed. And I just thought, whoa. That's good. And it just, it made you feel, you know, fantastic. It mm -hmm. was, it was shot of adrenaline, but it also, it was an affirmation that what you're doing was right. You know, you're, you're actually doing it correctly because if you're presenting comedy, you have to have a laugh. Mm -hmm. You got to. So then, you know, you found that the performances got slightly longer. Yeah. You wanted more of the same thing. And for me, comedy then was then key. It was like, 
right, this is what I want to do. Lots of actors who want to do Shakespeare, lots of actors who want to you know, do the classics anyway. And I, all I could think of was, mm. I, just, I just want to do comedy. That's all I want to do. I don't even know if I'm good at it yet, but I just want to do it. <laughs> and um, I enjoyed performing so much mm. and you know, performing with people who were noted for it, brilliant at it. Um, again, I mean, you know, one of the first voice jobs I got was on the Kenny Ritt show. You know, Kenny Everett, a brilliant, brilliant man, did more kind of one-off characters and, and voices on mm. the shows like the Lenny Henry show and, and Jasper Carrot. So, you know, you're, you're working with people who you can learn from them. And mm-hmm. once you've, once you've grabbed all this, once you've got this, you want is more anyway. And it's strange in those situations, isn't it? Because people assume that getting the laugh is all to do with you. Did I get a laugh? Yeah. If you're on stage in a group, and one of you gets a yeah. laugh, you feel very much as if you're part of creating that laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't work just individually. No, no, no. You can go through a whole thing and not get any laughs, and yet if the thing is getting laughs, you're part of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the joy of, you know, sitting down and writing comedy is that someone will perform it and get the laughs that you intended. Mm. It can infuriate as well, obviously. I've only ever walked out of one show, mm. which was Ian Dury, who was a brilliant man, but wrote uh, this musical called Apples, and mm. it was on at the Royal Court at the time. You know, and I thought, well, there's got to be laughs in this. I'm sorry. I went, well, go and see it. It's got to be great. I got to the interval, and I just thought, I can't, I can't take any more of this. But you, you, feel, you feel as though somebody's just placed a soggy, wet overcoat around your shoulders because you <laughs> slump. Uh, it's such a, it was such a show. Yeah, the same feeling if, if you go to see a show that you know is funny. Mm. I've seen plays that yeah. I know are almost infallible, yeah. and yet I've seen them not get a laugh. And you think, no, what are you doing to destroy that situation? How can you not get a laugh with those lines? It's weird. Yeah, I meant to see two friends line. They were supporting a solo performer who had the second half of the show all to himself. And they were brilliant. They got fantastic laughs throughout all of their set. And then he came on and there was like chuckle. And I thought, well, this is good. You know, he's got to start off low and he's got to build up. And it's going to be one. There'll be tumultuous mm-hmm. laughter filling this theater. And it just got worse and worse from, from that tiny little chuckle. It just went to silence and then into heckling. And it ended a miserable evening. And I took the soggy overcoat again, put it on and just felt so low and miserable and left, left the theater thinking, well, yeah, it's a fragile thing, laughter, isn't it? Yeah. Off stage, in real life, laughter is one of those things that can come at the most inappropriate moments. And then you're in real trouble. In fact, the more serious the situation, yeah. it becomes impossible. I mean, you talk about becoming a kid again with Jim. Yeah. That's the situation I always feel, that I am turning back into a child because I think, oh, my God, uh, I'm going to die. Well, I told a, a gag to Sean Lock. Who'd never heard it? And it was, it's a, we were talking about people and about some peculiar friend of ours. And, mm-hmm. and I said, uh, there was a, a friend of mine I knew, cross eyed. When he cried, tears ran down his back. <laughs> and he said, I've never heard before. I said, it's a Les Dawson blind, you know, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. so, I mean, we're too precious about where we get our ammo from. And there's loads of things, loads of lines, uh, like that, that, um, He's so fat, he looks like he's leaning on a pile of crumpets. <laughs> it stops you getting angry that someone's... Mm-hmm. And um, it kind of diffuses the matter a little bit. You know, 
people always say, well, what were you like at school? Did, did you get bullied a lot? And I said, well, I was, I was one of the smallest kids in the class. Of course I got bullied. And they said, but you use your comedy to get out of certain situations. And I said, yeah, I tried. But, um, <laughs> they weren't yeah. in the mood, no. Well, in the mood to be told that they're, you know, <laughs> their mum had so many chins, she looked like she was leaving on the park list. They're not going to react very well to that. That's often the way it is, isn't oh. it? You think to yourself, yeah, uh, humour can get you out of any situation. Yeah. The problem is when people are angry and you start making jokes, it makes them more angry. And you haven't got time to go through your catalogue of snappy one-liners. <laughs> Just turn tail and run. Yeah, absolutely. But generally in life, it's probably one of the great assets that human beings have, I think, is the fact that they find things funny, that things make them laugh. I mean, I'm not sure... I don't know, you always feel with dogs, don't you, that they've got a sense of humour? Oh, strangely, you're mentioning dogs, Mike, because we actually had a dog for a while, but he was a pub guard dog, and the one thing he didn't like was you laughing at him. <laughs> if you laughed at him, he would chase you from room to room until he managed to grab hold of you, <laughs> and which he did. I was, I was 10 years old, and I was with my sister, and we'd made the huge mistake of pointing at him and laughing, you know, the laughter, that, that was bad enough. But if you pointed as well, this oh. dog went berserk. So we ran in what we thought was an open room, but the door was shut and we couldn't get the handle open. We couldn't turn the handle just quick enough. So I turned around to see this snarling <laughs> hellhound who then went for my shoe and my foot was still in it and chomped straight through it bit through my toe on my right foot. And he was then taken away, mm. locked in a room. But I did get a lot of comfort from my oldest brother's Swedish girlfriend called Jane, who was very kind and tended to me and mopped my brown and dabbed all the blood away. And I got a, my first kiss on the cheek. So that was very, very exciting. Yeah, it's well worth it then. Yeah. Worth the pain. Well, yeah, you know, it has that effect. Laughter can have that effect sometimes, a bad one, but there's also the good ones. I was once at West Yorkshire Playhouse. A girl came to me, and this was during a, a one-man show I was doing about one of Bill Bryson's books. She came to me and she said, uh, obviously I can't marry Bill Bryson because he's married, so could I marry you instead? <laughs> and the thing about comedy is you don't know when somebody's being serious. So I wasn't kind of quite sure. But so, And I, I looked and I thought, um, Gosh, she's absolutely gorgeous. Um, so I said, well, well, yes, of course, you know, we, we, can, we can get married. And then somebody called me, a stage manager called me from the other side of, of the bar afterwards, and I ran over to him and I said, I've just been, you know, proposed to. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. And, of course, when I'm back, no one was there. She'd gone. Uh, I mean, perhaps Bill Bryson had turned up. Bill Bryson. <laughs> um, yeah, well... Bill's one of those characters where you just, you read the books and, and you just think, oh no, this is laugh out and funny. Yeah. So when I started doing those, we went to Ireland to the Way Arts Festival. I've been there. It's great fun. Yeah. So yeah, it was fantastic. So we went, we went there. Everyone says the Irish love, love a good story. Yeah, of course they do. Everyone loves a good story, but the shows were uh, completely sold out so much. So we had to, we booked a, a, an extra show in a bigger theater and he was at the festival as well doing a reading from three or four of his books. So I went to see him. He came to see me. Um, because of when we first met, I looked at him and I said, I know, Bill, it's like looking in a mirror, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, I came to see the show and I said, what did you think? Feeling really nervous. And he said, I don't remember the book being that funny. Oh, uh, how lovely. Thank you. Thank you. 
And we were staying at the same hotel, so we were on our way back to the hotel. A guy tapped me on the shoulder and he said, uh, Hi there, I'd just like to say, you know, love the show, love love what you did. I thought, thought you were terrific. And I thought the show was great. I said, oh, uh, <laughs> thanks. And he wandered off into the night and I turned to Bill and I said, I don't know what to say in those situations. He said, well, you might have told him I wrote it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you, Bill. So we went out and had, had a meal after every show. So for the next few nights, it was great. You know, mm. just chatting and everything. And I had to do a spot on the Good Morning program to publicize the show. And so I went on and the interviewer said, uh, and I hear that, you know, you know quite well. And I said, you know, well, we're not picking out terms or anything, but yeah, you know, I sort of know him. And we continued the interview. It went very well. And I immediately phoned up the production company and I said, uh, did you see the interview? How did it go? I said, no, it looked okay. Yeah, it looked all right. And I said, has it any difference to the, um, the audience for tonight? And they said, yeah, two people have just cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> not what I wanted to hear. I've only met Bill Bryson once. He was absolutely charming, I thought. Delightful man. He's such a, such a nice guy. And I always thought he's the kind of guy, if you were in a bar, he'd be the guy sat on his own, on the corner of the bar, just watching everything. Mm-hmm. He's a great observer of behaviour and the, and the characters. Yeah. My favourite story of his is when he moved back to Boston. And he was in a, one of those lovely sort of Boston-style houses. Yeah. You know, picket fence and the garden and the sidewalk. And he invited his neighbours for dinner and then said to them, would you like some wine? And they said, oh, no, no, we're driving. And they'd driven down their driveway and then up his driveway. <laughs> and they lived next door to him. It's, it's one of those things that people say, you know, I'll, uh, you know, I went to L.A. for a while. And, I, you know, I was just strolling around and, and people go... You don't walk. You don't walk anywhere. <laughs> yeah. um, he is the sweetest, most charming man. But in the book, um, from a small island, he visited, you know, several towns, mm-hmm. one of which was um, Milton Keynes. And he just had a one-sentence description of Milton Keynes. Just said, didn't hate Milton Keynes immediately. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> That's a great line. All right, well, on that note, I shall take laughter and put it into the time capsule as your second Mm. thing, Steve. Mm. Right, let's move on to number three. Yeah. Okay, sorry to interrupt this podcast, but we are obliged to for some adverts. We'll be back very shortly. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Okay, sorry to interrupt these adverts, but we are obliged to complete the podcast, which, with the help of Steve Steen, we'll do right now. Have fun. Number three. I've always loved birds. The first time I heard birdsong, you know, proper birdsong, mm-hmm. there's a difference. When, you know, when, you, when you're in town, you get up and you hear a, a few of tweets of, of uh, maybe blackbirds and you know, a couple of robins or something. When you're in the country... It's deafening. It's a, it's a cacophony. It's the full Wagnerian orchestra of birdsong. And yet it's, it's fantastic. And mm. the minute you haven't got that, the minute you, you get silence, you, you do suddenly appreciate how really deafening silence can be. If somebody only, like as a kid, said, what would you have if you had a superpower? What would it be? <laughs> yeah, everyone said, you know, all kinds of things. I remember one of the things Jim said actually to me many years ago. He said, um, I'd love to have a, an eye on the end of my finger and then I could look around corners and things. I thought, well, that's a good thing. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> but it didn't kind of appeal to me as much as flying. And I thought the, the fact that you can actually leave the, the earth, the fact you can just go anywhere you want at mm. any time mm. and nothing is going to stop you. And, and, and I've, I've fell in love with birds from an early age. And I thought that that would always be my superpower. And there was one year that I'd only seen pictures of birds of prey in books. I, I, I was a, I was a city boy. I never saw anything, you know, bigger than a wood pigeon. And I was asked by one of the guys from the Oval, he used to help on the Oval and three of his mates to go to the Isle of Mull. Scotland said, uh, the guy's aunt has a, a small croft up there, and we'll go up there and we'll, we'll look after all the cows and the sheep and everything, mm-hmm. and she'll um, let us stay there for a lunch. So, great. And I went one morning on a very sunny day, and I looked up, and there's right just literally at the adjoining field, when I looked up at the sky, suddenly this dark shape appeared, and this shadow just grew on the side of the mountain. And it, it just grew and grew and grew. It was enormous, this tremendous wingspan. And a minute later, the eagle appeared, flying over the crest of the mountain. And I just stood there, and, and it was such a beautiful sight. I, mean, I just I just want to burst into tears. I mean, it was, it was glorious. And I thought, that's the first word of prey that I've seen. And I, I was kind of, I was affected by that so much when I, turned to walk back, yeah. I didn't see the open window of the caravan that was uh, next to me and um, <laughs> hit it full on and cut my head open, which, which was great. Um, <laughs> and through another friend of mine, um, uh, Neil Ashdown, learning a differentiate between the various sort of bird song. And some of them are, are very distinctive and some of them are not so, you know, mm-hmm. jackdaws and crows themselves. They all sound pretty much alike. You know? <laughs> yeah. But there are birds like, you know, a chiff chaff that actually has the same kind of sound as its name suggests. Mm. And uh, I saw our smallest bird, which is a goldcrest. And I saw that the other day. And it's, 
It's great. It's like a kind of, it's a small golden. It's got this tufted punk hairstyle <laughs> down the centre of its head. It looks like a little bald Mohican down the centre of its head. Is that smaller than a wren? I always thought the wren it's was. It's more smallest. than wren. I, I used to think, oh. oh no, the wren is the smallest bird. No, this one is tiny. Must be tiny because a wren is like a little miniature bird, isn't it? Very tiny. Mm. I used to live near uh, Hempton Court one time. There were loads of birds who visit the garden all the time. Um, there was a, a heron that used to balance curiously on the fence. And I said to this guy, what's that bird? He said, oh, it's Aaron. His, his name is George. And I went, how do you know it's Jim? He said, well, the locals come down there. And whenever I say, well, we come down <laughs> to see George. And I went, okay. And I didn't think anything about it. And I, I was wandering around Bushy Park. There was a heron focused on the pond. And it doesn't matter what you do. Mm. You could start playing the drums and juggling, and they, they wouldn't mind at all. And I said to this guy, I said, there's a heron. Look, just over there, you can see him. He's just standing in the tall reeds. And he said, yeah, that's George. <laughs> and I went, what? They said, yeah, I, 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 we always come down to see George. I said, are, are all herons called George? Thinking, is there something that somebody hasn't told me? <laughs> um, I'd never heard, we're talking bird song and everything, I'd never heard a heron make a sound because of what they do. You know, they're silent and everything. And I was kind of around barns, and I just caught the pointer beak as it was underneath this bridge. And suddenly this heron took off the most ear-splitting shriek, a real horrible nightmare ghostly shriek yeah. that you've ever heard, and said, what the is that? And <laughs> you said, that's George. George shrieking because he's underneath a bridge. Of course, <laughs> you know, we all do that. Yeah. When we go under a bridge, we all like to hear the echo. So I've, I've always, always, always just love birds. And um, it is incredible when one talks, they all talk, <laughs> and they all talk at once. So it, it's like somebody's holding a meeting and then trying to quieten them by saying, no, look, I, I, can't, I can't understand if you all talk at once. <laughs> it's more like a bunch of street vendors, isn't it, saying, me, over here, could you come and buy this, please? Yeah. Do you have a favourite bird, yeah. Mike? Yeah, I love a blackbird. I love a blackbird song. When I was a boy walking to school, I used to walk across the wreck yeah. and there was a great row of trees and there was always a blackbird in this tree yeah. singing away. And if you joined in, it would stop and then it would respond. Yeah, yeah. Just by sort of imitating it. I mean, clearly it would know that you were not a blackbird and that you'd got it wrong or that you were yeah. completely weird sort of blackbird. But they do that sort of... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got a sound that moves about a lot. So I would do that. Yeah. And it would stop and then it would sort of come back at you. It's magical to almost have a conversation with a bird. Someone recording, I think it was just an ordinary sparrow chirping away, found out that in some ridiculously short space of time, it had gone through like a thousand different kind of warbles and pitches and things. And, you know, and I think, what? If you talk that fast, I mean, no, no one's, no one's going to understand you. You're slow, slow down a bit. <laughs> One chirp at a time, please. <laughs> and it clearly can't be random. There must be a reason for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Birds are wonderful, wonderful. Beautiful. What a great thing to have, birdsong. I can't imagine not hearing and liking and listening to birdsong. <laughs> okay, Steve, we've got two more things to put in there. We've got one that you want to put in there to keep and one you want to put in there to forget. Right. The one I want to put in there to keep is mm -hmm. football. I, I love sport in general. But when I was a kid, when I was a little kid growing up, all I ever wanted to be, this was my one ambition in life, I just wanted to be a, a professional footballer. That's all I wanted to do. 
And I, you know, I played football at school. I loved it. And I you know, had a, such a joy for the game. And mm. um, I, I used to play for every team I could. <laughs> so, and, and at the weekends, I would climb into the kit and go and play for the school. And then in the afternoon, on a Saturday afternoon, I'd go and play for another U team. And then on Sunday, I'd play for a Sunday side. And this went on and on for, for ages and ages. And right through, you know, my teens. And then um, we'd always have a kick around in the school playground. My hero growing up was George Best. Yeah. And I got the kit and I was so proud just running around in this green kit and the, the green socks and everything. And then I did the thing of wearing it to bed, you know. I, I really was a, a kind of passionate kid. And then um, I thought everything was just wonderful about the game and then started supporting Fulham <laughs> and then heartache started I don't know where it came from I used to go to football matches my own as a 10 year old but that was an eye-opener it's all very well you know loving the game and I, and I really really loved the game and then actually watching a game it's a million miles away from what you think you're playing um, in later life when you actually go and watch the the professionals do it at the time, Bloom's ground, if you were standing around by the touchline, you could practically reach over and touch them. It was that close. When I used to go, the guys would literally pick me up, sit me on the barriers in the ground so I could see because as a 10-year-old and being small, I couldn't see a thing. And, and I would actually have to kind of dash around the ground to try and find places to watch. No. And I loved it. I just <laughs> loved the skill that was involved. And, and yet then you go away and you try things. And I remember Bobby Charlton talking about how he used to practice with left foot and then right foot, left foot, right foot, just hitting the ball against the wall and ball juggling, you know, and you try and do that. You do all your keep up ears and everything. And um 14, I went to join another team. And the guy who taught them, he was a, an ex-professional, and he took us on a rigorous kind of training run, going through all the kind of things that a 14-year-old could endure, I think. Mm -hmm. I came back feeling really, really sick for the first time. It taught me, A, you've got to be super dedicated, and B, you've got to be really, really fit. And just trotting around your, your school program isn't going to do it. You've got to dedicate yourself to it. Now, when you think of that thing of kicking the ball to left, right, left, right against the wall, yeah. you sort of do mm. it and you think to yourself, yeah, I've done 10 minutes of that. And mm. you realise that, in fact, he's talking about doing it for hours and hours. Hours and hours. Um, I live quite near our school, the school that Jim and I went to, which was um, uh, college. The school motto, Concordia Res Parvae in Crescent, which means, I think, uh, little things grow together in harmony. Well, <laughs> I'll soon smash that myth. And I, I, I enjoyed sort of playing for the school team. And once you got to a certain level, you would actually start winning games. And nothing feels as good as that, to actually go out, play, score, win the game, just mm. an outflow of emotion and joy, unconfined, just fantastic feeling. But unfortunately, when we started playing in the in the very first year, we had no idea. The school football shows shows you how old it was had buttons on them. <laughs> the school football shows, and it was kind of square patches of blue, green, yellow. It was like a Battenberg. And the first time we went out, the, the opposition pointed at us and said, "Look at these jolly jesses," and started laughing. Well. We lost the first game 2-0. <laughs> so to come through those kind of disappointments, we lost a game 33-0. Wow. Now, if anything's going to make you give up, it would be something like that. But I thought, no, because you know, we'll play again next week and we'll, we'll get better. Our goalkeeper, who actually let in those 33 goals, said, uh, we played like heroes. I thought, 
really? (laughs) (laughs) It's almost impossible to score 33 goals in that time unless you basically kick off and score. I think get bored doing it, wouldn't you? I mean, you would, wouldn't you? You just go, oh, God, look, (laughs) can we just shake hands now and go? (laughs) Um, Of course, I got into acting. I was still playing football alongside doing jobs and stuff. And then I got sent for an audition. I was actually asked, you know, can you play football? And I said, yeah, yeah, I can. Mm. And said, great. So could you um, juggle the football on your feet and give us a speech about why you want to play for this team? And I thought, mm, blimey, mm, blimey. But I, I was very, very good. I juggled the football and I gave the speech about why I wanted to play for the team. And I got the job and it was um, to do a TV adaptation of Eamon Murphy's book. It's own game. And it lifted the lid on some of the more kind of corrupt things that were going on in sport behind the scenes. And mm. But as, as part of that, we actually got to play. We went down to Bournemouth and, and played on their pitch. We went to QPR and they had the um, weather surface and played on that and played against some pros and semi-pros. And later on, I auditioned for the film Orange as a member of the football team. Um, my first sort of West End performance, I had to jug football in that as well. It was called a little bit less than it was at the Royal Court. Funnily enough, Jim was downstairs in TZ, which was the follow-up musical to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Jim was in it, playing an angel. And I was upstairs at the Royal Court, and I had to jug football. <laughs> Unfortunately, Mike, I was calling for notes in the pub next door at 11.30 in the morning which is where I stayed until three o'clock, then went to the stage manager's private club and uh, drank there until 7.30, where we all met again in up next door. <laughs> now, drowning in football when you're sober, no problem. Mm-hmm. Try doing it when you've been you know, on the lash all day. And I got this ball, and unbeknownst to me, the critics were in. <laughs> so I'm juggling the football. I kicked it once up in the air and then hoofed it as hard as I've kicked anything straight into the audience. And this guy put down his pen, caught it, threw it back, picked up his pen <laughs> and made a few notes. And I just thought, oh, no. You thought I'm never going to be a professional footballer now. But I still love it. And um, I don't fool myself that I could play anymore, but I did love it so much. And it led to lots of different jobs and me being able to just have a great time. Yeah, if you're not going to do something, the best thing to do is to pretend. It is, yeah. It's a lovely thing to have something like that in your life, I think. Yeah, I mean, I had to give up. You know, you, you make a choice between acting and, and getting kicked every weekend. And I thought, yeah, do you know what? Yeah, I gave it up. I still love it. I played my final game. I know that for a fact, because it took me about three months to recover. That was only last year. Yeah, the last thing I did was at Paul Merton's wedding when the guests were invited to take uh, three penalties against Peter Shilton and um, see if they could score. Wow. Yeah, I watched all the other guests go on, and there was Lee Simpson from the Comedy Store Plays. He's got two penalties. I thought, and I, I went up and put all three in against Peter Shilton. Yay. And again, that good feeling came back of, yay! <laughs> I just wanted to tell everyone. And uh, Bruce Forsyth, and he said, uh, you were wonderful, weren't you? It was wonderful. <laughs> so, uh, Neil Ennis was sat there and said, oh, wonderful. And I, I thought, no, the governor of all entertainment is singing my praises or something. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Brilliant. In that case, I should put football in for you. Yeah. Lovely. So we've got one final thing to put in there, something you'd like to bury and forget. Um, Again, ever since I was a child, I've never really been able to get on with freezing cold weather. It physically used to kind of affect me. Um, 
when I used to play football at school, mm-hmm. I couldn't do up my buttons on my shirt when I got my school shirt when I got changed again. <laughs> and and I thought, is it worth it? Is it really worth it for for this? When we used to go on a cross country runs, you know, I would pray that, that the weather was warm because I knew I'd come back looking like kind of Nosferatu or something, you know, <laughs> like just, Dennis Potter. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> just, just with these nasty claws. And um, basically, cold means nothing to any school. When we finished, you know, doing our cross country run, when we finished doing our football practice or when we finished finishing the games, into the cold showers. Cold showers. No. And, you know, we'd, we'd always say, why aren't these warm? I can hear from other children about, you know, their showers being warm. Why aren't our showers warm? So you'd have your shower and I'd be standing there shivering away again, you know, saying, can someone just do my shirt up for me, please? <laughs> um, so I never learned to swim because of the cold water. Right. When we were uh, taught to swim at um, junior school, I was just shoved, literally shoved in straight into the water, freezing cold. And that was it for me. I just thought, no, all swimming pools are full of cold water. I don't want anything mm. to do with this. I don't <laughs> want to be cold ever again. Um, one of my last act, playing for the first 11. And I was proud to play for the first 11. And there's always like an oversized kid in the school, three foot wide and just chiseled, features chiseled. He had a, a shock of blonde hair, you know, just rippling with muscles from head to foot, you know, and, and had the hardest shot in school. Mm. Whenever he was anywhere near halfway line, we'd always go, Charlie, shoot, <laughs> which, you would, which you do. Anyway, so this is a freezing cold Saturday morning. The pitch is just icy. It, it, it was just friend solid. Any professional ground, this game would be called off immediately. No, anyway, <laughs> we had to play. And we were doing okay. We're, I think we're 2-1 up or something. And I remember the ball kind of came loose and I started running towards the ball. But so did Charlie Bond. Charlie Bond came hearing towards the ball and I could see his right foot being pulled back and I just thought, no. And one, <laughs> this, this ear splitting sound and this ball flew through the air and just hit me straight in the knackers. <laughs> well, I just sunk to my hands and knees and stayed there until the referee blew the whistle for half time, which to my knowledge was a good 10 minutes after I'd gone down <laughs> and I ended up crawling off the pitch with my claw hands <laughs> on my hands and knees, all the way to the dressing room, which was a good 50, 60, maybe even 100 yards to the dressing room. But I, I managed to remove my shorts, and I just thought, all I want to do is pee. That's what this kick's done for me. I'm, I'm, I'm condemned <laughs> to an eternal feeling of wanting to pee. And I just stood there freezing, not being able to, to pass a drip. <laughs> I mean, not at all. And again, you know, I made a mental note that whenever it was, was cold, that was it. I was just, I'll make an excuse. Yeah. I'll get my mum to write a note. Yeah. It's a terrible thing to play a game of football, which we all remember from being young boys. A play a game of football on a frozen pitch, basically where you could graze your leg on the grass. 
wait, so wait a good, you know, kind of three or four minutes for the ball to come down after it's bounced on a rock-hard pitch. All these going to be staring upwards like a skylark. <laughs> we should have come down. I'm bloody freezing. Yeah. Well, just for you then, just for you, Steve, I shall definitely put cold weather in there and bury it. But also, I'm going to make an addendum to your football addition to the time capsule, mm. which is that if you ever get to play again, which you can yeah. through the wonders of the time capsule, I'd always make sure that it's an away game so you get a warm shower. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Anything or just a woolly football kit will do. <laughs> I'll wear in the fleece with a number 10 on the back. <laughs> lovely. Uh, Steve, thanks very much for talking to me. It's been lovely to see you and lovely to hear what you want to put in a time capsule. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Steve Steen. Thank you for listening to me and Steve Rabbit on. If you enjoyed it, then do listen to other episodes. There are over 260 available, as well as some specials involving listeners and some Christmas episodes if you fancy feeling festive in the middle of, well, whenever it is you're listening to this episode possibly Christmas, who knows? Do rate the show, and once you've listened to a few and got the tone of the whole thing, maybe you might even like to write a review. We love reading them and are very grateful for the effort that people make. You can generally find the reviews on Apple Podcasts, and they are, all of them, delightful. Like this one from The Quack. You see, it's quite anonymous, so you can be as rude as you like. This podcast is like a warm blanket, wrapping you up in gentle conversations with very nice people. That's nice, isn't it? Or this lovely one from Scandi1. I can't even remember how I discovered this podcast, but what a wonderful discovery it was. Right, I won't read them all, but they really do make all the effort, and there is quite a lot, especially from my son and producer, John Fenton-Stevens. Anyway, it makes it all very worthwhile. The theme tune is available on Spotify, and this was a cast-off production for Acast, just in case you were wondering. So until next time, keep well, be nice to people, and remember, you can fool some of the people all of the time, and all of the people some of the time, but the rest of the time, they'll have to make fools of themselves. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 